0: Well, good afternoon. Thank you everyone for joining us today. We're gonna to be talking about um, how virtual care can balance growth and safety as it continues to evolve. I am thrilled to be joined today by leaders in the healthcare space, um, Dr. Pat Carroll, chief medical officer at Hims and Hers, and Bradley Test, uh, co-founder and managing partner at Test Ventures.
1: Hi.
0: Uh, I'm just gonna pass it to my pa- the panelists to kind of just give quick, really quick summaries of their professional backgrounds, if that's
1: okay.
2: Sure, uh, sure. Um, in many ways, I kind of embodied the transition of care in this country. You know, for 30 years, primary care physician, seeing, you know, 30 patients per day, a panel of 3,000 patients, uh, hoping they didn't call me at night or weekends. And um, I loved doing primary care, but what I saw is I started taking more leadership roles in that, you know, helping some CMO, and I especially with CMO and then I was a CMO logarithm for five years is that the traditional system really wasn't working well for folks in terms of access to care and cost to care and that's when I joined uh, things I heard in May of 2019. I've uh, been there pretty much through the duration of taking in public and expanding their offerings
3: in telehealth. Um, I started my career in politics actually yes. and then shifted into to tech by running all the campaigns to legalize people in ride-sharing and then shifted that into venture by creating a fund where we invest in early stage startups that have regulatory issues. And if we believe we can solve those issues, um, that's what we need to really So we invested in Fangel, legalized air defense, sports invested in Roman, legalized inscription to tax, invested in bird, legalized electric scooters, and so on. But the sector that we invest the most in and are most excited about by far is digital outlets. So that's what we're we really have to get in touch. Great, thanks.
0: So just to frame this discussion, um, as most people know, during the COVID-19 pandemic, virtual care adoption exploded. You know, as it offers a convenient, cost-effective front door to care for millions of people. But this growth came at a cost. Um, there were some kind of some companies that kind of had a growth at all cost mentality that led them to push some boundaries and just put even just even put patients at risk. Some companies flew too high and too fast, only to crash and burn, and this left some patients stranded. And some of the mistakes that were made um, kind of resemble stumbles made in other industries like social media or in live sharing. So today, we're gonna to be discussing how virtual care can maintain its momentum both practically and financially, and ensure safe, seamless care access for the millions of people who rely on it. So just to kind of um, you know, kind of frame the discussion, Bradley, for those of us people beyond to who might not be very knowledgeable about virtual care, what exactly are we talking about when we talk about virtual care? So
3: there is a world one day where I do believe that virtual care will mean, and you know, what what I do, but actual surgery, actual true medical procedures being performed either in the metaverse or in some way. But we're not there yet. Basically, virtual care now is a medical professional using something like this to talk to a patient, tell them what's wrong with them, and then dispense medication in some way, shape, or form. Um, it's pretty rudimentary, but at the same time, that's basically what patients need most of the time as well. So we're still in the really early stages.
0: Right. So let's start by looking back at the past few years, you know, pre-pandemic through to today. There's clearly a surge in virtual care due to the pandemic. So um, Doctor Dr. Carroll, can you tell us what have you what, what have you witnessed in the past few few years?
2: pandemic actually celebrated so, I mean, obviously the adoption of virtual care and I like to call it health care because it's, it's health care right it's and, and it's virtual but it's still health care um, particularly among providers and so if you ask pre-pandemic how many providers were actually familiar comfortable always support virtual care very um, few would. would probably be 10, 20 maybe 25 percent but the pandemic literally as we all recall it was four to six weeks later, in-person visits essentially closed down. And so even major health systems said, we have going to ramp up virtual care, let's do it. And so I think it actually forced providers into getting very comfortable very quickly with the virtual care. Um, so I think that's one thing we've seen out of the pandemic, is the adoption and acceptance by most providers around the virtual health care. Um, I think it also accelerated uh, customer adoption of that. I think that was coming along regardless,
3: Mm -hmm. particularly in
2: areas that shortage of specialists, shortage of access, high prices, particularly like mental health and DERM. Absolutely. That was starting to move towards virtual care pre-pandemic. Pandemic Pandemic certainly accelerated it. Uh, But coming out of the pandemic, I think there's been more acceptance by providers, definitely, and honestly by consumers and patients, that virtual care can... Deliver high-quality care and cover a wide variety of conditions.
3: Yeah, and just just to add to that a little bit, I think the conditions were very right. So we had a bunch of companies that we were in that were kind of doing middling. COVID happened, and they shot up all the way like this. Um, and it's certainly for all the reasons Dr. Carol just said. I also think that you know a few things came together at the right time. So, for example, mental health. The stigma generally around mental health has been changed. A lot over the past five years or so. I think when, when the pandemic came, people said, "Okay, I need help. I need support." Pretty <laughs> much all of us did, right? Um, and then all of a sudden, virtual care became a really good way to offer that that type of support. Um, also, politically, you know, as we know, the only way politics works in this country is everyone fighting each other. People now, but this is the only issue that I've ever worked on where there's really kind of equal acceptance. By it on both sides of the aisle, right? So people on the left like the fact uh, that it serves the poor yeah. and kind of makes accessibility and healthcare cheaper. People on the right like that it serves the rural poor. Um, you know, it serves their voters either way. Um, but I've heard this from governors as conservative as the one here and Greg Abbott or as liberal as Bill Murphy, New Jersey, and all the way.
0: Right. So there's obviously a lot of excitement about virtual care. A lot of companies have gotten into this market in the past few years. But let's speak candidly about what we get right in virtual care and what went wrong. So, Bradley, do you want to take that first?
3: Sure. I mean, look, in any industry, when, one, things are just getting started, it's really nascent. There's some new technologies. There's not a lot of regulation because the regulators don't understand what it is. You know, regulation always lacks innovation by definition. And then you have companies that are meant to generate as much sales and profit as possible because people like me invest money in them and I'm expecting a return. You put all that together and you can certainly see why some startups sort of went too far and didn't worry enough about patient safety or rules around suspension control medication or things like that. And that's why we do need regulation. I mean, the thing that I find myself saying to founders all the time is tech companies aren't inherently good or inherently bad. Regulation is not inherently good or inherently bad. Completely unregulated world doesn't work for you because then nobody has confidence in anything, right? Or look at crypto, you know, to your Coinbase is always publicly begging, us, just tell us what the rules are. Um, so, no regulation is a problem. Back over regulation is also a problem because you can't really operate. And so, I think while wow, I wouldn't have wanted to see these companies do the things that got them in trouble, thank God they we weren't in any of them. Um, mm-hmm. It will force the conversation around what are the proper regulations. And I think had that not happened, it probably might have been
1: a few more years. Right. So
2: what I think we got right in my prime role when I started Hims first and still is today is getting quality nailed down. And so my contention is, when you practice in a virtual environment, and you have a virtual healthcare company, you have to do quality even better than in traditional brick and mortar. So. You know, overseeing, you know, 2,200 providers at a $3 billion health system. We had quality structures in place um, for a large multi-specialty group of 2,000 providers. You know, I oversaw quality for that group. But when I came into the virtual environment, what I realized is that you needed structure that you were reviewing randomly, you were viewing outliers, you were reviewing anything that involved a patient encounter. Uh, for your providers, or virtual providers. And so, <clears throat> to me, it's putting a quality structure in place. Like I think I heard last year, we did about 50,000 patient encounter reviews randomly and then for outliers. I never did that on my physicians and groups. Mm-hmm. But we have to do be better with quality in the virtual environment. So, I feel very strongly about that. And I see more and more virtual care companies in healthcare really doubling down on quality. And that's a good thing. So, I think we've done a really good job of that. I think the challenge where we get things wrong is every time you go into a new vertical in virtual care, you have to ask that fundamental question, can I deliver the same level of quality as I can in a brick and mortar practice uh, as in a virtual practice? And if you can't answer that question and say, I can deliver the same level of quality in the virtual practice as in brick and mortar with all those safeguards, you shouldn't be doing it. And I think that's the issue that came up fundamentally with controlled substances. I think that's a really tough thing to do in a virtual environment. Can it be done? It can be done, but you have to have safeguards in place and really have to double down on putting those in place and, and tracking issues that come up with it. And if you can't provide that same level of safety and care in a virtual environment, you don't need business
0: mm-hmm. right? Great point. So, aside from prescribing a controlled substances, because I feel like that's a definitely a certain area of virtual care and telehealth, but I do think I think it's interesting in some ways because I feel like um, speaking, to, following up to your comments about quality, I do think that digital health and virtual care companies are kind of held to a higher standard as far as quality. And I mean, I, there's no guarantee that a brick and mortar provider is providing the highest quality care. So, as you mentioned, like brick and mortar providers aren't being evaluated. So, I think that's interesting that.
3: Yeah, well, look, it's not sexy to go after some dermatologist, like offices, you know, two doors down the block (laughs) or whatever it is. But, you know, anything that has the word tech in it all of a sudden becomes inherently exciting. And look, the New York Times specifically has been on a very aggressive campaign against digital health as a sector overall. Why? Because I would argue it fits the politics that make the paper a profit, right? Mm -hmm. So, if your readers were very aggrieved, you want to pay the year that business is bad and tech is bad and wherever they are in life, it's not their fault, um, then going after the tech industry broadly and digital health specifically makes sense if you're of someone who's more So I think it's being really led by that. And look, this is kind of getting into the work version of how media works today, which is there are publications like yours that are really intelligent, smart, <laughs> in a particular industry. The ones that are really big businesses, it's sort of all or nothing. It's not really about reporting facts. And so I think digital care a little bit is stuck
0: in that right now. Yeah. I mean, I do think that scrutiny is is definitely warranted, and I think digital health and and virtual care companies should be held to that standard, and I'm I'm glad that there is that strong focus on quality. Um, But in some ways, there's an argument that digital health companies are kind of more focused on quality. Than, uh, than even the, some brick-and-mortar providers, I guess is the point I was making.
3: Yeah, well look, because ultimately, one, the goal for them to all be to become public companies will be acquired, you know, for a stake number by some other healthcare company. and two, everything they do is in some ways much more visible because it's there it on the internet. Mm-hmm. So, look, you know, there's certainly some level of quality, quality control generally in healthcare, and you can speak much better than I can, but like when I was the deputy governor of Illinois, I oversaw the, you know, the medical board and all that, and they didn't do very much. You know, there really was, was not not a lot of activity where that dermatologist getting random visits to make sure that the quality is high. So it may be a different standard, but again, that may be better.
0: Yeah. Just I hear more conversations about measurement-based care um, among like the digital health companies and the virtual care companies, which is, I think, interesting. Um, but are there lessons that can be learned or that have been learned from other industries like that have seen, high, you know, fast growth like social media or ride-sharing? lessons for virtual care companies?
2: So, things that we haven't learned Or things
0: that can be learned or maybe already have been learned.
2: I think what we learned from companies that are not healthcare companies um, and they can apply it to virtual care, is really how to engage the customer to get them interested in what you're doing. I think the big problem we have in healthcare is uh, Patients generally are not engaged with their own care. We don't empower them. And it's a very paternalistic system. I, I was terribly guilty of this as a primary care physician. I had 20 minutes with a patient with diabetes. I said, do X, Y, and Z, take the medications. If you have side effects, let me know. They that I really didn't want to know unless there was something was fairly dramatic. And it wasn't very customer friendly or consumer centric. Um, I think Good virtual care companies are extremely good about relating to customers, asking them all along the care journey, "How are you doing? Things better? Things not better?" Almost that customer relations management, which healthcare never had any visibility on, and really providing a high-touch experience, even though it's virtual, because they're getting constant outreach by the providers, uh, by the company, about how are you doing? Anything else you can do, And it, it's really a Intense customer focus uh, that healthcare in general has not is way behind on, and and so we've learned that from learned it from Walgreens, you know, from Walmart, you know it was more customer focus than it was when I was a CMO for health systems. You know, we we learn it from you know companies that are really good around customer management and bringing those concepts into our healthcare platform. I think is hugely beneficial to customers. It improves engagement, it includes medication adherence. You know, I think people get better quicker if they know that someone's out there is actually caring in they've done
3: mm-hmm. um, I was in, based on sort of the experiences I've had, you know, kind of a couple other industries that are heavily regulated, uh, things that can be looked right? So the, the first thing is, you know, you can't fly under the radar screen, right? This notion that if I just don't stick my head out, no one's going to notice me, and I'm never going to get in trouble, have to deal with any sort of regulation or anything else. Like, that never works, right? It might work for a little while but it's not a long-term strategy, and if you're building a business, you have to be in it for the long haul. That's number one. Number two, every jurisdiction is different. The politics of Austin are very different than the politics of Houston, which are very different than the politics of Dallas, and that's within one state. Um, And so, ultimately, you have to know who and what you're dealing with in each place, right? And you can't just use a one-size-fits-all strategy um, across the country because that's not how things work. Third is, especially for healthcare, Regulation is really multifaceted, right? You have agencies like CMS at the federal level that have promulgated regulations all the time. You state departments of health are the same thing. The cities have health clinics and hospitals. And so it's coming at you from lots of different places and you need to be aware of all of it and you go to understand the distinction of it and how you deal with each of them. I think the final thing is there are times where cooperating with regulators when the industry is necessary makes sense, but there's also protection Right? I think we're seeing that right now from a lot of state medical boards that are opposing to prostate licensure, and when that happens, just like people like you got to go after people, and sometimes that gets a little rough. And have to... Don't stop. <laughs> All right, sometimes that gets a little rough, and you got to be willing to do it.
0: Um, yeah, great points, great points. So to ensure the industry retains and builds more credibility and trust, what are some of the ethical considerations that companies need to take into account? In order to scale effectively,
2: you know, this has come up quite a bit recently in the media, and I, you know, I'm supportive of the fact that we have to look at not only patient safety in a virtual uh, platform, but also uh, patient health information and protect that. You know, so we've a proprietary EMR we built from scratch. It's HIPAA compliant. Does the same thing in terms of protection as you know, an Epic or a Cerner, um, but we have to constantly be convincing the customer as well as outside entities and regulators that we're protecting patients' health data and we're not sharing that indiscriminately without consent of patients. Of mm-hmm. And um, that's not just a virtual health issue, that comes up when I was at health systems and multi specialty groups. Um, patient privacy and data is is sacred, mm-hmm. and if, if you try to skirt that issue, it's going to come back to bite you, and I think there's been a lot of examination of that, you know, from the media, um, and I think from regulators. How, how well you protect your data, what are you sharing, how are you trying to monetize that data?
3: Mm-hmm. And, and there's a real opportunity here as well, right? So... Uh, Better technology can make data safer. It certainly make it more portable. It could give patients a lot more control over their own records. Makes it easier for them to see different kinds of doctors. Make decisions based on their own independent thinking, as opposed to just being in one system. Or another, um, I think the prominence of digital health now will probably, you know, prompt a, a reconsideration of HIPAA sooner than would have happened otherwise. HIPAA's done some good things, but at the same time, there are definitely ways that it could be uh, a better law. And so, you know, there may actually be a chance to sort of move the industry forward from an ethical perspective because of the prevalence of promises that we have.
0: Right, great points. And uh, just a quick note to the audience, and I should have said this at the top of the session, but we are going to be taking uh, Q&A towards the end, like the last 10, 15 minutes. So if you have any questions, just keep those in mind. Um, so we have great points about data privacy, especially in this kind of post-Dob world that we're living in. And um just kind of considerations about any health information that companies have and how that can kind of play in. Um, so let's talk about the regulatory environment. Um, during the pandemic, the federal government waived certain restrictions and put flexibilities in place that opened up access to telehealth. As it stands now, some of those flexibilities have been extended through 2024, but I think um, long-term changes are a little bit more up in the air still. So are there any legal changes coming or considerations that companies need to take into account and how will the regulatory climate impact companies scaling in 2023 and 2024?
2: You know, as Bradley stated, it, it, it's a state-by-state uh, issue. And so today, at and we prefer doing asynchronous care. Why? We can do it really efficiently. We track the quality; it's just as strong as synchronous, meaning the video visit. Um, and uh, providers like it. I and mean, when we give patients a choice, and in some demographics we do, you will always opt for asynchronous in the great majority of time. But there are states that say you cannot do asynchronous care, it must be done synchronously. So we have a flexibility for companies. We can accommodate whatever the state regulations are, and they're constantly changing. Um, it's a great business for lawyers and our government <laughs> relations team, because. I'm literally out on the road with them speaking to state legislators around the country and leaders in healthcare statewide, but you you have to go by the regulations that are driven by the states. Of course there are federal regulations you have to comply with. But in, in healthcare, what we found a lot of this is the bubble up from the state as opposed from federal. And then
3: from there I think you have to think about why are these concerns being written? Right. So I think we all agree that there's plenty of regulations in our that that is necessary and important. At the same time, when so when COVID happened, the federal government waived all the cross state licensure restrictions, and basically anybody could treat anyone anywhere in the U.S. And that helped a lot, right? It really provided a tremendous amount of accessibility to people who otherwise might not have had it, especially people in more rural states and smaller states. You know, I live in New York City; we got a lot doctors, right? But mm-hmm. uh, if, if you're in Wyoming, it might be a different a different story. So one is about half the states have continued to allow cross-state, uh, you know, patient care, and about half have stopped it. Why, right? I would argue that this is not a legitimate regulatory or medical reason. These are the medical boards within those states engaging in the same kind of protectionism. You see the hotel industry doing the Airbnb. You see the casino industry doing a Fanduel. You see the tax industry doing an Uber. Um, we're trying to use regulation in the competition because they haven't made the key sensations to their own business model to be able to compete otherwise. I think that's sort of a really big one. I think for all portfolio companies at least, cross-state licensure is uh, the number one issue that we're talking about. But overall, I mean, Dr. Carol was talking about synchronous and asynchronous care. um, We should be working towards a regulatory structure that provides the most amount of care for the least amount of money at the highest quality possible. Right? And it's very hard to, say, to convince me that the meaning synchronous care only makes sense, right? You can have situations that might require for it, but overall, if something is working really well for patients in Nebraska, it, it's probably, from a digital health standpoint, also going to work in Jersey. Mm-hmm. And So I, I think that we've got to distinguish between what are sensible regulations that deal with problems like cerebral and, and what are regulations that are really just medical boards and doctors who don't want complications.
1: Yeah.
2: Yeah, you know, I think the fundamental issue is that <clears throat> we all recognize the health system is fundamentally broken. The $4 trillion system is delivering values that's suboptimal compared to, to, to other uh, industrialized nations. Uh, and it's hard, I think, sometimes for legislators and uh, you know, governments to, to recognize that. But if you actually look at where the problems are, is access to care. You know, primary care physicians like myself are becoming Less and less in Boston area where I live, it takes over 100 days to get a private diagnosis. So good luck accessing care um, in mental health. Uh, Saw a recent study that said it takes 10 weeks to get access to a prescriber for mental health. Right? and over 50% of psychiatrists don't take insurance. So your access issues, your cost issues, is pushed to shift risk, financial risk, to the payers the individuals, so you have high deductible health plans, fifteen to sixteen hundred dollars a year. Essentially, you have catastrophic insurance. You pay out of pocket for everything. Um, so people are willing to pay out of pocket for something that gives them accessible care, that's affordable, that's high quality. And that's where virtual health is kind of stepped into a major gap in what we have in this country. And I think. What we need to get to is a point where there's a recognition that the traditional model, what I did for 30 years, 30 patients per day, more chronic conditions coming up, it's unsustainable. You don't have enough providers to do it. It's economically, it doesn't work. You have to have alternative ways to deliver care in this country.
0: Right. Yeah, uh, cross-state license care is an issue that comes up a lot. Um, a lot of patients establish relationships. For providers outside of their states during the pandemic, and you know if they don't want to you know lose those relationships now. Well, Especially therapists,
3: right? Mm-hmm. I mean, these are people who you know, you're pouring your kind of heart out to them, you're trusting them with your secrets, you want their advice on ways that you should think about it and even live your life, and to just say, okay, now you can't do that because you live in Kentucky and the therapist is in Tennessee. Uh, that's really unfair to patients. We're investors from Alma which is kind of a back-end system that brings mental health providers together with insurance, scheduling everything else, to make it easy for the therapist to do treatment, and I have to worry about all the other steps in it. Um, And I think this is a really good example where digital health can add add, add a lot of value. When a company like Alma can kind of aggregate lots and lots and lots of doctors, then all of a sudden for patients, yeah, it's not so confusing or hard to find and everything is there and set up for them, and it's more efficient for the doctors, which means they can spend more time focusing on care and less time focusing on paperwork. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, I mean just the, the notion that you would let people build a relationship, especially with a mental health professional, and then just take it away from them, is literally the thing.
0: <laughs> so when we talk about access to care, um, you know, everything in healthcare has, needs to be looked at through the lens of health equity and um, health disparities. So how do you see virtual care as you know helping to address health disparities? You know, how do companies ensure that they're not exacerbating um, existing inequities?
2: You know, that's one of the biggest talking points we have when we go out to a state who's dead against asynchronous care. Um, there are literally regions in their state, particularly rural areas, that they don't have the bandwidth to actually get on a video. Visit with a provider. Um, if you provide asynchronous care, that can get care through a cell phone with a lot less bandwidth needed to deliver care, and it's very affordable. And, and I think that, that has been ringing true to a lot of the states. They say, you know, we have a health equity issue, uh, we have an access issue, and then we're putting on the burden of, oh, this must be a video visit if you if we're going to allow any. Uh, Telehealth at all, uh, at all um, it doesn't make any sense. If the quality is the same for both modalities, why not provide the modality that is most reachable to every part of the population?
3: And I think there's specifically one thing that could probably deal with health equity better than anything else, and that's medical. right? Mm-hmm. So when we diligence uh, a health a digital health startup, really often the question we ask ourselves, because we're the, we are venture funded off of the politics, is, can we get whatever this is on the Medicaid reimbursement risk in an upstate to then potentially of something generate enough revenue to merit uh, investment or our of right? Um, there's no reason why people who are on Medicaid, and Medicare, but especially Medicaid for this conversation, um, shouldn't be allowed to get the same types of treatment, especially if they can be obtained in an affordable way because of virtual care than people who are in private pay. Um, and I think... Medicaid, Medicaid medic runs state by state, which is what makes it so complicated. But if they said what's one way that we can eliminate disparities in care, if I were them, I think what are the types of virtual care that we can bring into our system so we can make our costs cheaper and we can give our patients a lot. Right,
0: yeah, great points. Um, so obviously, chronic, we've got a very high prevalence of chronic diseases in this country. Um, you know, 30, 30% of, of I think of people in this country have at least one chronic condition. Um, so what role can virtual play in helping to address chronic diseases?
2: Well, it is today. There are companies, you know, the Onduo, Wabongo, Vita Health, uh, Berta, that are delivering virtual cardiometabolic care. And I think they're doing a very good job at it. Um, if you actually look at diabetes alone, in this country it's a national epidemic Thirty-five, forty million 35-40 million diabetics, 75-40 Probably pre-diabetics, Um, Most diabetes care is delivered by primary care physicians. The uh, management of complex diabetes which actually drives most of the cost of complex diabetics as someone on insulin, single when they see more than A, is miserable. And the reason is it's very complicated to do that today. There's 40 different medications that primary care provider needs to know in 10 different drug classes for manage diabetes. And so once you get beyond the formula and a touch of insulin, then you're your lost of what to do next. So these virtual companies are coming in and saying, we can take care of your lower acuity but more importantly, your higher acuity diabetics. We can get you access to virtual endocrinology consult to help manage those complex medications and deliver better care and then connect you back to primary care provider. To me, that's an essential, good model to deliver care the national epidemic, which is diabetes, with high complexity driving most of the costs. So, today there are companies that are offering that. Um, the challenge always is who's going to pay it? Is that going to be the employer? Is that going to be the payer? And it's always a struggle for them to figure out what the payment model is going to be to make that work. I'll,
3: I'll pick a different epidemic, which is the opioid crisis. And that is one that the country, search, especially certain regions. And there are startups, we're investing in one called Boulder Care that are really trying to use digital health to help people recover faster and better. So, for example, Boulder Care's thesis is every additional amount of friction that an addict has to go through in order to get treatment means fewer and fewer will do it. So, if someone, instead of having to go to an a meeting here and a doctor's appointment there and a the pharmacy there, if everything can be delivered online and every medication sent to your home and everything else, that will allow some people to recover and to not be addicts who otherwise wouldn't have been able to do so. Um, and look, is it the only solution to the opioid crisis? No, not at all. Um, but it's, it's one certainly worth having in the mix. And, you know, this, I think, is an example of where virtual care, is, at least when you are uh, surgeon or your state health uh, commissioner or whatever it is, is how do we use this thing proactively as a tool uh, to actually help deal with our problems as opposed to either. We ignore it because we don't want to deal with it. It's too complicated, or you know, the people who are kind of the squeakiest deals in our world, the medical boards and whatever else, are complaining and yeah. want us to crack down on So, yeah, I mean, there's lo- lots of different health crises that can be improved by incorporating virtual care into the And the one underlying truth that we're starting to recognize more
2: is that behind much of this. On mental health issues. If you look at a chronic condition, if someone has two more chronic conditions, about 50-60% chance that anxiety depression associated with it, which affects their appearance, it affects their outcomes, and then unless we address mental health issues, all of these other chronic conditions will not improve, and we've done a terrible job of getting access to mental health care, and it impacts every one of the chronic, you know, medical Diseases, so we have to address mental health in order to improve anything in chronic conditions, mm-hmm. and that's where virtual health can be a really powerful ally because virtual mental health works, and it's actually the one vertical that's in hugely sustainable coming out of the pandemic.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Can I ask you a question. Okay. <laughs> um, so right now, there's a huge funding disparity between mental health and kind of physical bodily health. And I think the thing behind that is they're two different things. right? I would argue right, they're, not. they're not right. And so, how would you reconstruct that if they said, "Okay, what should the payments and reimbursement system be like if we're looking now to resolve effectively one system?" I think
2: historically, payers have underpaid for mental health, which is crazy because mm-hmm. it, you know the payers are interested in you know the medical loss ratio, of course, quality of care, but how you reduce total cost, and you're not going to be able to tackle that unless you tackle mental health. So I think the payers need to invest in that, and as a country, need to invest in mental health because the, the, the two are just intertwined. You can't separate the two. I saw it every day in my practice. If I had a diabetic who happened to have depression, they weren't going to get better if I didn't treat the depression. They weren't going to take the medications. They didn't show up for appointments. They didn't get the human being once a year or six months. So the two are absolutely intertwined. When we talk about chronic conditions, mental health for many folks is a chronic condition that needs to be
0: Right, yeah, great points. So uh, I want to shift the focus a little bit and just talk about the this, this, this business market. Um, as you mentioned, healthcare is a $4 trillion industry. There are a lot of players out there who want a piece of that pie. <laughs> We're seeing Amazon getting into healthcare. They started Amazon Clinic, which is like a virtual clinic. They had Amazon Care and then they shut it down and now they have Amazon Clinic. Um, you know, Walgreens, where you used to work, Walgreens, CVS, Walmart are all getting into healthcare, Walmart bought a telehealth company. Um, you know, Walgreens and CVS are making healthcare, healthcare plays and that touches on telehealth and digital health as well. You know, what are your thoughts on all these, these like, non-healthcare companies getting into healthcare?
3: I, I think they needs to be fixed, right? So, look, for example, there was this, yeah. you know, you mentioned, Amazon, brochure, sure, gay people, right, the titans of all of these different fields. Nothing happened, right? I don't think I don't know if anyone here can explain what actually happened. Um, and so, um, and even like a CVS, right? Like I, I've worked with CVS. They're they are just as bureaucratic and slow as in government agency or anything else. And so, while I understand that acquiring companies, them either starting companies or acquiring a really early stage, I think is a mistake because their culture is really going to end up being a deterrent. Innovation, Um, And I think you should want digital health companies at the early stages, at least, to be founders with doctors on the team who are coming up with ideas and pushing the envelope, and then once they've established, like, okay, this is scalable and we can rinse and repeat, then Walgreens, CVS, Amazon, Walmart, whatever, go ahead and buy them. But if we're starting innovation with these 40-50 companies, I think we're going to lose out on a lot of things to develop.
2: One positive aspect of, of you know, the retail health along in the CDS, Walmart, it, it, in a way, Amazon getting into it is providing uh, more access to care. I think the one word of caution is they've, they've all tried it and have not done well on it. So mm-hmm. some are in iteration two, three, four. Mm-hmm. Um, and then each company has a different motivation from my perspective of, of why they're doing it. Um, and so you always have to step back and say, What's the motivation and how, how long are they going to be in this for? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I do like the fact that someone can go to a wall game CBS CVS to get access to care in a convenient location. So that's the whole basis for, for virtual health, it's really access that's convenient and affordable. So I, I don't, um you know, I'll, I'm not against them all getting into it. It's, 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 it's interesting. It's, it increases access and decreases costs on all four. It's a tough not to crack.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's a, obviously an area to watch. Um, so as we get closer to the audience Q&A, just to um, put this at you, what excites you most about virtual care and individual health right now and kind of the opportunities as it, as it evolves?
3: Yeah, I mean, for me, I think it's what Dr. Carol already said, mental health, right? And we invest across the sector, so all my other founders, I still love you very, very much. (laughs) But um, we've seen the ability to really help people. Look, I have teenage kids. I have a 16-year-old daughter who was like, in the thrust of the pandemic, suffered all of the crises we was reading about, um, and that absolutely upended her life and our lives. And so to me, you have this opportunity to really reach of millions of more people. And the reality is, everybody can be some sort of mental health care in one way or the other because there is no standard like this is fine. With 8.5 million people in the world, eight and a half billion different combinations of DNA, everybody needs help in one way or another. And so, in terms of something that could be scaled pretty rapidly and really have a material impact on society in a positive way, mental health. Yeah,
2: yeah I, I agree with Brad about mental health. The other thing that excites me about Virtual care is it, it delivers and brings folks into a system for health care that really has not been focused for health systems traditionally. At Him's and Hers, you know, we serve all demographics, uh, all ages over age 18, but we do have a particular uh, resonance with millennials and younger. And if you actually pull them, they love getting care in this modality. And I have three millennials and of when when to said like the job, I'd never heard of the company for God's So I, but my three millennials said, Oh Dad, you're gonna go up to San Francisco and interview with them. So I uh, the big debate in my family was, you know, what do you wear for interview? I said that's from Walgreens. And my kids said, Remember those Walgreens we gave you for Christmas that you never wear? You gotta wear those, the tight black T shirt and jeans <laughs> and didn't go out and interview. So I went out there and you know, what occurred to me is, you know, the CEO of what things was doing was really bringing in folks into healthcare care the way they want to access it. They go online, they read content, they educate themselves, and then they get directed to care. They do not go on to the, the website of a major health system in the area and say, I'm going to establish a primary care physician. That's such a foreign concept. <laughs> so To me, what virtual health can do is bring in new generations into healthcare, giving the content, empower them to be their own healthcare advocate and get them tied in to developing good habits, looking at areas that they should improve on in terms of health and bringing in it as
0: an ally. Great. Right. Great points. Actually, I have one more question. So you brought up, like, the healthcare system. So we have the traditional healthcare system, you know, hospitals, brick-and-mortar primary care doctors, and then we have digital health and virtual care startups. And sometimes it feels like these are two separate two separate things. You know, like and so there's the kind of that danger of, of care becoming fragmented because you have people going to the virtual care companies and you also have people going to hospitals and primary care doctors. So how do you ensure that this is all kind of an integrated experience?
3: Well, when we talk about really big companies getting involved in virtual care, I would much rather those be giant hospital systems. Because then they can incorporate that into their treatment, and that helps bring the whole system together. I think also the, the more that the interoperability of, of different electronic systems gets better and better, and more investors in medical flex that are working on this right now, uh, I think that makes it easier, right? So right now, you know, he works at his or her. And I'm an investor in Roman. You know, our systems don't talk to you know a typical hospital, right? But I think once that mechanism is put in place, that should help quite a bit. But also, third, this is a slightly crazy statement, but that's what you're supposed to do on panel. Um, to me, we should be striving for a world with fewer hospitals, right? I mean, what hospitals, yes, they're 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 critical, but they are wildly expensive to build. They're even more expensive to operate and maintain. Have rampant virus spread throughout them. Uh, what if we could really reduce the cost and improve the outcome? That should be more and more either virtual or individual things like surgery centers. Um, I would love to see a world one day where, you know, the modern version of the hospital doesn't necessarily exist.
2: I think we can definitely coexist um, with health systems. We need to be a part of the solution. Um, we have seven health system partnerships today and hers, and No money to change. We don't get money for referrals. They don't give us money back. It's, it's really pain. It's really closing the quality. And so probably 10% of folks go on our platform. It's too complex to have a virtual care visit. And so, in those areas where we have health system partnerships, we actually can direct them into a the health system, either getting them with the primary care providers or specialty care. And to me, it's closing the quality. And so, patients appreciate it, makes me feel better about that quality of closure. And the health systems love getting referrals. So, I, I think there is a world where the two can, can coexist and thrive. Um, but they're very traditional, right? And they move slow. Mm-hmm. They're ready to pay. Many are forward-thinking, but there are others that look at us and what we do as a threat as opposed to part of the solution.
0: Yeah. Listening to hospital earnings calls, and the focus is still very much on volumes and emissions and getting more patients into the, the beds. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we're ready to take questions from the audience. If there is anyone out there, go ahead. Step on forward. Is
1: the mic on? No. He okay. Hello, thank you very much. For being here. I'm a designer from Holland. Um, my question is about: measuring two ways to to the system is right. so, um, And I would argue there's a third way the system is broken, and that's the same. The US and also the members. Um, and that, that here in the US, black women are three times more likely to die than white women during pregnancy. So, I'm really, I'm really curious to hear, it. um, what have you learned about how virtual care could build for a more inclusive, um,
3: healthcare Yeah, maybe it gets back still to the first two, right? The, the reason why there are these disparities is, uh, funding in communities or typically lower income is significantly less than people like us who so can do private pay hey, they can do whatever we want to do. So, you know, anything that can improve Accessibility and bring down cost inherently should deal with the racial disparities you're talking about. We strongly believe that the sector that we're in has the opportunity to do that. I would also say that, you know, to the extent that some patients feel discrimination when they're in person by a doctor, you know, virtual care does deal with some of that. So, like, for example, uh, you know, using Uber. Some of our biggest supporters were people of color because there's not a single person of color that I've ever met that didn't have the experience of raising their hand got an empty taxi and it just drives right by that. And when you press the button, the first thing I ever did for Uber was I wrote an ad for Black Radio saying, "If you press the button on your phone, no one knows the color of your dinner. Um And we, I think, have been able to really reduce that specific problem. Now that problem not the only particular problem of what you're describing, um, but I think in addition to the fact that the underlying value. Of virtual care can get to it. I think sometimes, you know, as a way to kind of limit suppression of care, technology can help with that yeah. mm-hmm. Thanks. Hi. Uh, I own your child, adolescent, role in practice, and adult uh, psychiatrist, and seven And uh, I'm curious when you're thinking about uh, your responsibilities as employers, investors, etc. You're looking at kind of top capital going the companies you're investing it seems to me there's an existential risk for small businesses especially around the unimaginably high cost of every new drug that comes to market and the PDS associated with it so that for the audience 180 thousand dollars a year is the average cost of a new drug in 2023 the average income in America is seventy thousand dollars a year and that means you can never be employed and I actually I have sorry I brought right so I extreme. We have biologics mentioned catastrophically expensive. How are you thinking about mitigating that risk for your investments? Because
0: key employees
3: at those smaller, innovative companies essentially getting knocked out of the ability to get meaningful coverage is systemic risk at an individual level when treatments are at the 180 to $1.5 million range, and we're just talking about the drug, mark. Yeah, so you
2: hit on a, a big issue, which is Whole area of pharma, drug costs, um, PDMs, which I can speak hours <laughs> on. I still haven't figured out Please their value. They want to yeah. <laughs> um, so the, 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 the structure of him's and hers is that uh great, great, great majority of medications that we prescribe off our platform are generic nets, so Very affordable, um, very accessible. And very effective like in mental health and SSRIs and SNRIs for the right person with anxiety and depression work, um, without getting the more expensive brand, left brand name medications. So in, in many ways, we disintermediate the PDM. Uh, we disintermediate the brand, the high cost of branded medications. Um, that being said, we have seen this huge struggle now out there with GLP 1 medications, if you're not familiar with them, they're very effective for diabetes. Yeah, yeah, they, yeah. but okay. they're also extremely effective for weight loss. It's going to change how we manage folks with BMIs over 30 in the future. $1,400 a month. Mm-hmm. And so all of a sudden, if you're very rich, your insurance is going to pay for it, um, or you have to jump through so many hoops to get it, I'm just going to go ahead and pay for it. Uh, but if you can't afford it, the insurance society, you know what? You have a BMI of 30, and you don't have enough comorbid conditions that we're not going to cover, and you're really in trouble, right? And so this dilemma is not going to end. It seems like every year there's a new class of medications that come out that are effectively limiting to a certain class of, of patients uh, based on how much money they have and how much they can afford. So. <laughs>
3: Yeah, so I would say this: I have never before, when we have done all of our diligence to health tech investment, thought about can they attract the level of talent that they need based on the healthcare that they can offer, so that people who might you know be incredibly talented and we want to have them, but they have a specific issue. It's a good question. I don't know if other health tech investors have thought of this or not, but. I'm going to come back to New York and say we don't look at this. -hmm.
2: So, we we don't don't look in 40s when they come in, in terms of, you know, yeah, Mm -hmm. we can and we don't. And we have great health insurance for a small company, and our employees are covered. And that's been a focus for us from day one.
3: So It's a great point, and it is so far afield for them of uh, the stuff that they're dealing with every day. Um, but you're totally right. The infrastructure bill that passed, congress miracles that actually got all the way to Congress, uh, did include something like $80 billion in new funding for broadband infrastructure. Uh, hopefully, that will make a really major difference. Um, I also think that there are probably some of these satellites that we haven't quite explored yet that can make a major difference, and if you think about the two big populations who could really benefit from virtual care? It's the urban poor and the rural poor. Urban poor, you know, bandwidth not really an issue because cities have it. Rural poor very much so. And it kind of makes the politics interesting, right? Which is, you know, do Republican governors, for example, who maybe don't want to usually put a lot of money into healthcare systems because that's either got to have lower taxes right. or whatever else it is, realize that if they want to be able to deliver this product and this service to their voters and their primary voters and constituents, Um, should they really be prioritizing the state budget. Um, And, you know, I think if if you accept the fact that every politician makes every single decision based on re-election and nothing else, which I spent 15 years working in government politics, and that was my conclusion, um, then, yeah, I think they will. But it takes someone like you to bring it up, because I had never thought of it.
1: (laughs)
2: Yeah, a, every offering we have, we look at what the price is going to be because we realize for, as a direct consumer tax base, isn't it? We had to be really sensitive to the price point. Uh, we don't have facility fees, obviously. That, that's kind of a the health system world where they tack on these, these facility fees. Um, but we're very aware of price, and you know, when you reach the price that folks can't afford, they'll vote with their feet. They just won't. really you know, won't stay on the tax. Thank okay. Also, maybe a lot of times time, time of time. You're going to do so much of virtual care, you do so much in, in brick and mortar. <clears throat> I really believe physicians love it. You know, we have over 600 providers, physicians on our platform. We have no trouble recruiting. Why? Because just like patients, they can access patients 24/7 on their own schedule. They can do much of it off, even on their cell phones. So it's very convenient for them to do, and they love our EMR. It's really simple. It it checks all the boxes. It's not the land of a thousand clicks with like an epic. I was was on for many years. So I think you make it, you you, you, you align the incentives for physicians to give the time or money to do it, but you also um, make it an experience that they enjoy. And then I'm a big believer in hybrid care. I don't don't think we're ever going to have fully uh, all virtual care for the complex chronic conditions. I think 70, 80% of the patients can be treated virtually. It's really getting my positions position to toughest thing. A lot of it comes down to comp models. That's you wrong reason. the of Real yeah. i I'm really curious. I'm
3: Yeah, look, from a a regulatory political perspective, um, we are so far behind all sorts of privacy. Data privacy for healthcare is probably most foremost because it's literally your health, but it's also your Facebook account or whatever else. Um, If you look at Europe, they've got something called GDPR, which is a EU-wide framework for protecting consumers' data and ensuring more privacy and everything else. We do not even have that. That should be the most baseline thing. And then the kind of stuff you're talking about, which is like a next level of sort of complication and intelligence, um, we get into. So, yeah, I mean, I think one of the ways that that tech regular regulators have failed in this country the most when it comes to tech um, is privacy. And I think especially in healthcare, they just revert to HIPAA, which isn't, HIPAA has some real value to it, but it's a reasonably old law. The world has changed a lot. And the kind of thing you're talking about, which is, You know, what is the right level of question? You clearly want to give the companies enough information to be able to provide care. You also want to be able to protect, you know, as much privacy as you can of the patient. Uh, And I don't think anyone's even asking this
1: question. Great question.
3: I'm sorry, <laughs>
0: I don't have a good answer. I'm, yeah. uh, I'm very U.S. focused, so I honestly don't know how to compare it, sorry. Um, well, those was all great questions from the audience. Just to wrap it up, just to kind of finish this off, um, where do the two of you see the greatest growth in virtual care in the next few years?
3: All right. We, we've got, we sort of said mental health and nauseum because it just is the best case. Right now, completely, I guess the magic words that we haven't uttered in this panel are personal health, right? Mm-hmm. And the question is, what are ways that you need to use AI to reduce sort of human uh, things that it cost you have a pay people money to do and you can do instead automated? Uh, there will be all kinds of ethical questions and challenges around that, but at the same time, if you really want to go and propel virtual care as a better option that is more accessible and more affordable, AI's gotta be part of the
2: yeah, I, I agree with that. And, and what we have in our virtual health platform, like it's in and her, we very structured questions. When folks come in, we collect tremendous amount of data, off of structured questions. And then we travel, you know, we're with them through their whole care journey. We, we, we see a provider on our platform, and then if they qualify, they get a prescription. So we know what their adherence is. We, we have all of these data points. So in the future, we could be able to track. You know, how you answer questions, where you fall in 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 those answers, what medication you go on, if you happen to go on, what your adherence is to it, and your response as we check on a regular basis, you know, how many improvements you've made in that area. We could tie that all together to actually do predictive analysis of based on how you answer these questions, this is probably the most appropriate medication to send you the best results. And those are all data points you can put into a machine learning model and actually come out with some really interesting uh, results.
0: Well, thank you, Dr. Perrell and Bradley, for joining me today. It's been a really interesting conversation. Yeah, thanks for having me. <laughs>